Well, amen. Thank you, Pastor. I appreciate that. What a great time it's been already watching the baptism service and worshiping with you and hearing that you have an emphasis on shoes and socks. And (laughs) there must be something there, brother. Oh, but I'm really excited about being here and being with you today and uh, sharing God's word. Being with you again this afternoon at five with the men and the boys uh, and having a good time talking about outdoor stuff and uh, men and boys stuff and having a cookout and then coming back together tonight and uh, meeting with you one more time and bringing, uh, bringing God's word to you. So it's just a special time for me to be here. Now, as we begin, I want to share one thing with you and then I'll wrap it up toward the end. This is the first time I have stood on a stage and preached in 14 months. So you must say, my goodness, the man's washed up. And, uh, you know, and uh, I have done a couple of wild game dinners in August and September. But it's the first time I've preached in 14 months. And I'll share all the details as we move along through this as to why. And no, I just didn't get out of jail. Uh, and because uh, I would have been preaching in jail if, if I'd been in jail. But anyways, uh, I loved it when I pulled in today and saw the huge sign, Hope. I think that's just absolutely awesome. Because the title of my message today is Real Hope for Real People. And I want to talk to you about how to have a real hope. Not a conjured up hope, a motivated hope, some kind of hope that hangs on a string, some kind of hope that hangs on things, but a hope that hangs on a real God who's at work in the real lives of real people and not something you see painted on a screen somewhere or etched out upon a, uh, a life of someone, but just regular folks, just like me and you. Now, I want to invite you to uh, my favorite book in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, all right? Let's go to Joshua, and I want to share with you there, um, as we begin the story of what's happened. Now, I'm going to put on my glasses, because I've come to the point in my life where curiosity is greater than vanity. All right. (laughs) Oh. And I want you to look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, let me lead you up to what's happened here. This is the story of God's people, the children of Israel, crossing over the River Jordan, and into the promised land. And today I want to show you three principles, three simple but powerful principles about how to have real hope in your life. How to have real hope in your life. Moses had died. Their leader had had passed away. And the people were saying among themselves, what in the world are we going to do? How are we going to get across that river and into the promised land without Moses? I mean, God appointed and called Moses. And so God spoke to Joshua. Joshua, being the good Baptist he was, said, mm, I'm not real sure I can do that. Let's form a committee and we'll talk about that. And, uh, and God told him, Joshua, I'll be with you. Wherever you go, wherever the, foot of your foot, the sole of your foot steps down, I'm there. 
I'll make that way for you. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, 8, and 9 are some of the most powerful scriptures in all of the Bible. I'll not leave you. I'll not forsake you. I'll be with you. And so Joshua said, I'm in. Let's do this thing. And so the first big problem was getting across the river. It was the time of year when the river was out of its banks. The Jordan River was running strong and deep and wide. And Joshua had no idea how to get across that river. He commissioned all the main engineers and architects. They looked at it and said, we can't bridge it. We can't find a place to cross it. We can't build a boat that will get us over there. We are stuck. We can't come up with anything that's going to get us on the other side. We're just going to have to camp out here and pray for a drought. And Joshua got alone and he went to God. And God said, Joshua, here's how we're going to do this thing. And you're going to line them up in this order and get the Ark of the Covenant up there. And then when, you put the, when those guys put the soles of their feet in the water, the water's going to part. And I'm going to draw it back just like I did the Red Sea. And there's going to be dry land. And you're going to trot across to the other side. And as you go, I want you to pick up 12 big rocks. The 12 tribes of Jordan, he said, I want you to get, uh, of, of Israel or Jews, he said, I want you to get one person or group out of each tribe. And I want them to grab a big old rock, just the biggest thing they can tote. That's southern talk. And uh, the biggest thing they can pick up and carry, and we're going to carry it over the other side. Joshua said, well, what are we going to do with those rocks over there? He said, we're going to build a monument. We're going to build a bunch of big stones. And you know what it's for? Well, I love this. These These are stones of hope. When you bring your young'uns back, Southern talk again, when you bring your children back to the edge of this river in generations to come, they're going to look at those stones on the promised land side where they are now, and they're going to say, wow, where did those come from? And then you're going to be able to tell them about a God that got you across that river. And that will get them across any river they ever have to come up on in their life too. The same God that made a way for us is going to make a way for you. And I want to tell you today, that's exactly what's going to happen. Joshua chapter 4, and it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spoke unto Joshua saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every man, out of every tribe of man. And command them, saying, Take thence out of the midst of the Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet, uh, priest feet stood firm, twelve stones. And you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. Now, go with me down to verse 19. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. Those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch at Gilgal. And he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over against this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters from before you until you were passed over, and as your Lord God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we were gone over. And here it is. 
that all the people of the earth might know the hand of God, that it is mighty, and that you might fear, reverence, honor, obey, believe, trust, have hope in the Lord your God forever. I want to show you three things that God has shown me out of this scripture. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for bringing us here today. I'm humbled that you called me to speak and to be a part of this wonderful month that they're having. I thank you for the precious souls that were baptized here today, God, and the influence and the impact that they're going to have on the lives of this world for Christ. Now, God, I really know that in a crowd this size, there's some folks here that are searching for hope. There's some people here today, God, that are, that are walking down some streets that the lights of hope have blown out. And God, I pray you'll speak to us today. Speak through me. God, I'm your servant. I desire that I just be put in the background, die, die away, and that God Jesus just step forward and that he speak through me. Now, Lord, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hope is a powerful word. Churches have known it for years. Well, look at the name of churches. There's First Hope. There's greater hope. There's new hope. <laughs> I spoke in the church the other day. should have been named No Hope. I'm telling you, you know, it was just I was waiting on the casket to come in. Hope has always been in the view of so many people. We all are hopeful. We all are excited about that hope in our lives. Now, I've learned one thing about life. Life is the sum of all of our choices. You and I live our lives right now today because of choices we made yesterday. And some of those choices have knocked hope out of our hands, have knocked hope out of our heart. Now, choices are hard things to do, aren't they? To make a choice, make a decision. We struggle with that, don't we? Everybody does. Here's a perfect example. <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur and you want to invest some money, I've got the idea we're going to get rich, and here's how we're going to do it. You ready? We're going to open a restaurant. And you know what we're going to name it? I don't know. Where do you want to go? Because that's what's going to happen to you when you get in the car in just a few minutes. You're going to go, well, let's go get something to eat. Where do y'all want to go? I don't know. Where do y'all want to go? My family burns a half a tank of gas trying to figure out where to go. And the blue plate special is going to be, I don't know, what are you having? I go out to my, my wife and I, and, and we'll sit down and look at the menu, and I'll say, well, honey, what are you going to have? I don't know. What are you having? It doesn't matter what I have. I eat all kind of critters. She doesn't. I eat oysters. I eat frog legs. I eat squirrels. I love crawfish. And, yes, I suck the heads to get the juice out. My wife ain't doing none of that. Her idea of an exotic meal is fish sticks. So she's just wasting her time, she says, because I'm going to get the wackiest, weirdest thing on the menu. We have a hard time making choices. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't make a choice. And God said, now, Joshua, here's what you're going to do. So Joshua went back to his leadership, and he said, folks, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go down there. God's going to part the water, and we're going to try to cross. And they went, mm, really? He said, don't you remember... The Red Sea, well, we heard about it because some of them weren't alive back then. 
And we know, but do you think God really would do that? I mean, really? Do you think God would really do that? And here becomes our problem. You see, I believe God could do anything he chooses to. Do you agree with that? God could do anything he chooses, right? But would God do it in my life? Mm, I don't know, Joe. Man, I know... I know God can do anything he chooses to do, Joy, and whew, I know he can do that. Mm, bye. I don't know if he'd do it for me or not. I'm not sure. See, if you and I were to go out to eat, let's, let's just say we met and had a glass of sweet tea. I love sweet tea. I have to say this. Hello, my name's Joey, and I'm a sweet tea holic. And uh, I have a card in my wallet that says, if anything ever happens to this man, put sweet tea in one arm and blood in the other, and not necessarily in that order. And we were to go have a sweet tea, and I were to say to you, do you really think God would do it in your life? What would you say? Hmm, I don't know. The first principle I want to teach you. With hope comes the belief that what's impossible can become possible. You see, we've got folks constantly telling us we can't do anything. We just can't do it. It can't be done. You're not going to achieve that. You're not going to match that. And then we try to believe with God all things are possible, as Scripture says. And we go, wow, I just don't know if I can believe that. I just don't know. The impossible becomes possible. Now, why wouldn't you and me believe that? I tried to figure my life, because I figure I'm kind of average old boy, and maybe relate to you. Why... Don't I believe that? Why don't I believe that God would do the impossible? Well, I think there are three reasons. The first is because I know all my past failures. <laughs> you been there? I know how many times I've messed up. I know how many times I've made a mistake. I know how many times I made the wrong choice. I know my past failures. And I go, Lord, I got all these past failures. How are you going to do the impossible in my life? For almost 30 years, I was a senior pastor, and I did a lot of counseling. <laughs> and I learned real quick, and this pastor will agree, there are some people that come to counseling for counseling, and there are other people that come to counseling for a referee. It's real simple. You know, I could say, they come in, I just, they'd be, and you know, they come in to sit down, well, God bless you. And instead of saying a prayer to start the counseling session, I would go, let's rumble. And they would, boy, they'd just tear into each other. And it was always, you know, and one guy said, my wife always gets historical. Every time we have a discussion, I said, no, 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 hysterical. He said, no, sir, historical. Everything I've done wrong in our marriage, she trots it out and runs it by me. But isn't that our nature? Don't we go back to past failures? Don't we go back into the past and say, well, you know, I prayed. And God never answered. Oh, he did. He did. He'll answer yes or no or it's not time yet. Be patient and wait on me. I'll give you an answer. You know, our past failures and then our present fear. We're just afraid. The Bible says... That in the last days, that men's hearts will fail them for fear. But the Bible says also that you are not to have a spirit of fear or timidity. But that you're to have power of a sound mind and a sound heart. 
God does not want you living in fear. You need to write it down. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God is in control and we as believers have got to come to a point where we really acknowledge that and simply understand that. That we've got to come to that point and say, these present fears are not going to engulf me. These present fears are not going to take me. But it's easy to be afraid. And there's all kind of fears. You talked about trunk or treat. There's the boo kind of fear, you know, scared. Woo. I, you know, I just freak out at Halloween and everything, you know. And uh, one night, my mother-in-law, we didn't know she was coming. She showed up at the front door, and Lord, I just passed out. I thought, that's the best costume I've ever seen, at least the most scary. And, uh, and, and uh, we just have this fear. We, we deepen in our heart a tremendous fear. I love NASCAR. I don't like it as much now as I used to. I'll be honest with you, it's becoming too corporate organized and too much junk. But I love NASCAR anyways. And I've always liked NASCAR. And a number of years ago, some of my friends said, well, if you like NASCAR, have you ever ridden in a NASCAR car? And I said, no, I've never ridden in a NASCAR car. And they said, well, you know what? We're going to fix it so you can ride in a NASCAR car. And so they fixed it. And they called me and told me, they said, all right, you've got to meet us down at Atlanta Speedway. This is probably 10 years ago. You meet us down there. We've arranged... Uh, with a car deal for you to ride in one of the cars. It's one of Jeff Gordon's cars. He's not going to drive it, but another NASCAR driver will drive it. And I was all excited. Man, we were so thrilled. I called my doctor up. I said, Doc, I'm going to ride in a NASCAR car. He said, you know that little white pill you take for the blood pressure? He said, you might ought to take two. And uh, so uh, back then I weighed about 40 pounds more than I do now. And... uh, So I went down there, had my grandchild, my, little, my grandkids were little then, had my grandkids with me, and my wife went with me, and my son was in college, and I was all big and bad, you know, I'm going to ride in the NASCAR car, and got down there, and they had that beautiful car ready, and everybody's introducing all that stuff, had me a little outfit to wear, and put on my little suit, you know, and I was just something, I'm telling you, I was something. And they said, all right, Joey, this is so-and-so. He's a Winston Cup champion in Australia or whatever. But anyway, really good driver. How you doing? How you doing? He said, you need to get in the car. He's going to wear you out. And I said, oh, son, I'm excited. I went around to the right side of the car. Pastor, they don't have doors. You don't get in a NASCAR car with a door. You watch them. You won't ever see one of them open the door and say, just go right in. If they just don't have them. And then the passenger window's a lot smaller than the big window. And I looked at that window and looked down at myself, and I looked at that window, and I went, hmm. And my grand said, go, Grandpa, go, go, oh, go, Pop, Pop. Oh, boy, it's been great. And I'm like, hmm. My wife's going, oh, you look so manly. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be great, you know. Well, number one, my little short stubby legs couldn't get up there to begin with. I just, I couldn't even kick the window. And then I tried to go in head first, Hit right here, you know, and that was it. So I backed myself out, and I said, mm. and the crew chief said, hey, pick him up, boys. And them old boys picked me up and run me in that car head on. And when they got to the big part right here, it went, and they backed out, and they backed out. And finally, he said, get some of that WD-40 over there. They used three cans on me. And finally, I 
and popped up in the inside the car I was. Sat down in the seat. Driver, how you doing? Put straps on me and all of that. And the driver said, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a minister. And the guy tightening my straps up said, have you said your prayers today? I said, oh, Lordy, what am I getting into? We were the only ones on the, on the track. We're sitting back in the back of the, of the pit area. Speed limit's 55 miles an hour on pit area, remember? No, it ain't. And we're sitting back there. He said, you ready? I said, yes, sir. He said, reach up there and grab that, that little rod with this and hold on to that, that pole with this, right? Get it? And I said, I got it. He said, well, do it. And I said, no, sir, I'll get it in a minute. And I was already smelling like WD-40 and upset. And he said, I think you ought to go. I said, I'll grab it when I want to grab it. Okay. Eight hundred horses came alive. That car just you could just feel it, and it was saying fresh meat, fresh meat. We got somebody in here, and all of a sudden he said, "Grab the poles." I said, "I said I'd get them when I'm doggone ready." He said, "All right," and he let the clutch out, and we went to fifty-five miles an hour in three feet. Boom! He took a farm, and I'm back in the back of that seat, going, "I can't grab them poles." I can't hold on them bolts. When we came out of that pit, we were running 120 mile an hour. I thought we was going right over into the hot dog stand. And then it, that track caught us and whew, around that track, he shifted into fourth gear. And I mean, we were flat flying. And I'm going, I left my stomach. And uh, we started whipping around that corner. Whew, and, we were, and he wound that thing up. Holy mackerel. Now, I'm Southern Baptist. I've been Southern Baptist my whole life. But I'm telling you, when we come out of that fourth corner, we come up about that close on that concrete wall. I could have reached out and tapped that wall. We were running 190-something miles an hour, son. I started chanting Buddhist chants. I was counting beads. I was speaking in tongues. Everything I'd ever heard about, I was trying it right there. We went down that back stretch. Lord, have mercy. I, didn't, I just couldn't believe how fast we were going. I asked him later, after I got out of the hospital, uh... You know, that's a good kind of fear, though, isn't it? I mean, that's the okay kind of fear. That's all right, right? I mean, you know, it's fun. That's fun fear. But life isn't full of fun fear. Life's full of fear that grabs you and it don't let go. It's that fear standing in the house when everybody else goes to bed and the house is quiet and dark. and You got a cold cup of coffee in your hand. You look at that street light going... I ain't making my mortgage this month. And this is the second month in a row. I don't know what I'm going to do. They say they're laying off at the plant. Man, we're barely making it with me working. The doctor is supposed to give me his report tomorrow. It can't be good. That's fear. Gut-wrenching. Make you not sleep at night. Fear. But God said, listen, I'm not giving you a spirit of fear. I've given you power and a sound mind. Now, I'm going to say something right here you're going to disagree with. That's okay, because I'll prove you wrong. Nobody ever drowns by falling in a swimming pool. You say, no, 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 we see that all the time. Somebody falls in the pool and drowns. They don't drown by falling in. They drown by staying in. If you get them out, they're okay. They drown by staying in. You're not going to drown 
when fear shows up. Because greater is he that's in you than that fear that's in this world. But friend, you can't live in that fear. It will eat you alive. It will ruin your health. It will dissolve your marriage. It will pull the hope right out of you. Some of you here today are afraid. You woke up this morning. You went to bed last night. And I'm telling you today, you don't have to live in that fear. Oh, it'll raise up every once in a while. But you don't have to live there. God can do the impossible. But my past failures, Joy, my present fear, and the perplexing future, Lord, what's tomorrow like? I mean, tomorrow's so, I mean, our world's going nuts. Do you understand what's happening out here? Our world's going totally wackadoodle. It's just gone out of its mind. I see stuff and go, I can't believe it. I was speaking a couple of years ago in Missouri and getting ready to go out in one of these huge wild game dinners, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And there was a gentleman who was sort of escorting me, uh, being my host. And uh, I'd driven in. I have a tour bus. And I'd driven in my tour bus. And, and uh, he'd come out and everything. We were sitting out there talking before we went on stage. And he said, Joey, he said, let me tell you something. Common sense ain't too common anymore, is it? And I went, brother, you are a philosopher. That's exactly right. And people are afraid of that. I had a young couple come up to me after church one Sunday. Beautiful girl. Guy was, but the girl was really pretty. And they came up and said, you know, Pastor, we've decided we're not going to have children. And I looked at him and thought, that's a pretty good idea. We don't need no more ugly kids in the world. And, uh, and there's no such thing as an ugly child. Uh, but there are some ugly grown-ups. And, uh, and she said, we're just so afraid about the future. Do you not understand your child can be the salt and the light for the future? Do you not understand that that kid that you bring into the world might change the world? You can't be afraid of the future. The impossible becomes possible. Here comes the second thing. You ready? <laughs> the impassable becomes passable. What was their problem? They, simple, simple problem. They couldn't get across the river. That was their problem. They were ready to celebrate. They were ready to praise God. They were ready to worship. They were ready to go, but they couldn't get across the river. They just couldn't get across the river. They had come to an impasse. I bet you today some of you are at an impasse. I bet you some of you are at a place in your life that you just can't move on. It might be because of the pain of a childhood. Something might have happened to you when you were a child. It was horrible, horrific. And it just won't release you. Some of you might have a broken marriage, a divorce or two. And you go, I just can't move on from this, Pastor. I can't, can't move on, Joey. Some of you have been hurt, disappointed. Disappointed in God. Some of you are mad at God. How could God let that happen to me? I've been faithful. I've trusted him. I've followed him. I've believed him. I've loved him. And then, boom, the hammer hits me. And you get mad at God. And we're just being honest. I told you this is for real people. This ain't no flowered motivational speech, believe it and achieve it and, you know, and all that mess. This is real stuff down in the real world. There are a lot of people who are disappointed in God. But understand this. 
God's never disappointed in you for being disappointed in him. God still loves you. He's got a plan for you. You come to a point and say, Joey, I just, I just can't go any further. You don't understand. Well, then you've got to do something. I don't agree with everything Dr. Phil says. But one thing Dr. Phil does say, he says you just got to get up off the couch and do it. And you do. Sometimes you're just in a situation where you've got to do something. You just can't sit there and have a plum party. You know what that is, don't you? P-L-O-M. Poor little old me. Oh, I'm just so sad. You can't do that. You got to get up. Trust God. Believe God and move on. I was raised in Greenville, South Carolina on a mill hill. I'm an old linhead. Went to bed at night listening to the Monaghan J.P. Stevens Mill run. I grew up there. Great time. I wish my kids could have grown up like that. Do you know, I was 12 years old before my daddy found the key to the front door. We go on a week vacation, daddy would say. Y'all shut the door? That's all he said. My wife and I go out to eat. And we go, did you turn on the burglar alarm? You sure everything's locked up? You sure the guard hounds are out? You sure the snipers are on the roof? We got everything protected, right? You got your your carry gun? I mean, it's a different time. Man, it was just uh, so great. Well, he lived in the mill village just like me. He lived in Rome, Georgia. He said when he was a teenager, he had to be home at 12 midnight. Live with his mama. Had to be home at 12 midnight. Well, one night he'd gone out on Saturday night and he was having a great time with his friends and he just got him a new watch. <laughs> and he was just having a good time, you know, with his new wife and his friends and everything. One of them said, now what time you got to be home? And he said, I got to be home midnight. So what time is it? And he looked at his new watch and said, 20 minutes till midnight. Still got a few more minutes. We can hang out. So they were listening to tunes down at the soda fountain, you know, and uh, spinning some discs and all that stuff. And they're having a good time and Time got away from him. One of the guys said, you got to be home at 2, right? He, I mean, 12. He said, yeah. He said, well, what time is it? He went, 20 minutes to 12. Oh, no. Now, I need to educate the young people here. There was a time that you had to wind these things. They had that little twisty thing sticking out there, and you had to wind them. Nowadays, they got all kinds. They got battery operated. They got some that actually work off of your own energy, ergonomics. A friend of mine owns a jewelry store, and he said, Joey, yeah, I think you need to have one of these ergonomic ones. So he gave me an ergonomic one, and in 30 minutes, I blowed the lid right off of it. Too much energy. And so he forgot to wind it. And he said, what time is it? And the guy said, it's 10 minutes till 2. He said, oh, no. Ran home, took his shoes off, opened screen door. He had just put some three-month oil on it so it wouldn't squeak. Opened screen door, snuck into the foyer in the old mill house. Whew, I've made it. Had his shoes. His room, if you remember the old houses, they had a stairs that go up to the bedrooms where Mama was. And you go past the stairs, you go to the kitchen, and there's always a little bedroom off the kitchen. And he starts sneaking through there, and all of a sudden he hit it. Every house has one. It's a squeaking board. We have one where I live, right in front of the refrigerator. I think my wife had him put it in when the house was built. About 2 o'clock at night, I go, my wife goes, Joey. And I go, she goes, we don't have a cat. And uh, so he had squeaking board, and he just froze, and all of a sudden he heard, Jerry? That was his name. Jerry? Is that you, Jerry? It was his mama. Yes, mama, it's me. Oh, Jerry, you're such a good boy. You're home. Yes, ma'am. 
Well, good, you go to bed. I'm going to make you biscuits and gravy before we go to Sunday school in the morning and go to preaching. And it's going to be a great day tomorrow, son. We'll have fried chicken when we come home. Yes, ma'am. Oh, mom, I love you. I love you, Jerry. You're such a fine son. Oh, thank you, mom. I love you. Go to sleep. Yes, ma'am. She laid back down. He went, phew. Then over his head, on the wall, was the German cuckoo clock. And it cuckooed two times. And Jerry said, I just did what I had to do. I cuckooed ten more times. <laughs> I'm telling you, you've got to get up. You've got to get past this stuff. You've got to come to your pastor and say, Pastor, I'm in a point I can't get past. I'm tired of sitting on the couch and feeling sorry for myself. I'm tired of pitying myself. God's got a plan for my life. God's got great things for me. His son died on the cross for me, and he gave his life for me. I, my life has value. My life has worth. I am valuable to God, and I'm not going to waste my life. The impassable becomes passable. Finally, the impassionate becomes passionate. We've lost our joy. A lot of people aren't joyful anymore. They're not happy anymore. They're not excited. You know, happiness is, hey, I got a new car. That, I'm happy. It's not joy. Happiness is the, is the waterfalls in the river. Joy is the deep running stream. You can be joyful without being happy. You can be joyful at a, at a funeral. But you might not be happy. And he wants to give us that joy. He wants to return the past. How do you think those people acted when they went across that river? Well, isn't this a wonderful thing? God bless. It's just great that we've just crossed the river. We'll just... No, they were excited. They were, praise God, hallelujah, woo! You know, they were dancing and carrying on the other people, about two, two million of them. And, and one crowd had got across, the other crowd was still over here, and they saw them hooping it and dancing it and excited. And man, wow, they had gotten their passion back. And so many Christians have lost their passion. We're going through the motions Going through the motions in our marriage, going through the motions in our life, but we've lost the joy. We've lost that joy. We've hung our harps in the willows. We're not singing the songs of Zion anymore. We've lost that joy. You remember what it's like? That first love passion? Jesus wrote seven letters to Revelation, right? The best church was Ephesians. But Jesus said there's one thing that I have to tell you folks in the Ephesian church that you need to do a better job of doing. What was it? You've lost your first love. They were going through the motions. They were doing everything. But they'd lost that joy, that passion, that emotion. They'd lost their first love. You remember your first love? Some of you think back, run back through your mind. Woo, you remember that first love? 14, 15, whatever you were. They call it puppy love because it leads to a dog's life. But, and, and, you, and, you, and you fall in love and you go, oh my, wow, isn't that great? One thing being a pastor I used to love. You'd see it happen. One Sunday morning, all of a sudden, 13-year-old boy walk in and he had taken a bath where he didn't have to. He had his hair slicked back. And, and he was all, and you could, he had his dad's aqua velvet on and you could smell him from the pulpit. You know what I'm saying? He was all dutied up because there was his girlfriend. 
His girlfriend was there. And that first Sunday, oh, they were so cute. They'd sit beside each other and hold the hymn book like that. (laughs) And the second Sunday, it was like that. And the third Sunday, it was like that. And the fourth Sunday, her dad was sitting between them. And uh, there's something about that first love in there. Man, when you fall in love, you do things for people you love you don't do for other people. You know why you sing in that choir? You don't sing in that choir because you made a commitment. You sing in that choir because you love Jesus. Why do you come down here? You come to worship because you love him. Why do you do what you do for God? You do it because you love him. I'm on the road a lot, or have been on the road a lot, and I'm starting to go back. And I'm telling you, there's this blonde at home. (laughs) I can't wait to get home. Oh, man, it's just nothing like it. I walk in. She looks at me with those beautiful brown eyes. I look at her. I reach down. I reach and just run my hand through her hair. Oh, it's awesome. I love my Labrador retriever. (laughs) No, you know what it's like to be in love with someone. Church of Ephesus, you've lost that love. I want to ask you today, have you lost your love? Are you griping? Well, I got to go do this. No, you don't. You get to. Well, I got to cut the grass. No, you don't. You get to because you know more people in the world ain't got grass cut than you do to cut it. Well, I got to go run to the store. Praise God you got the money and a store to go to. We need to learn to be more grateful, have a heart of gratitude, be more thankful instead of griping all the time and growling all the time. And you do that when you love someone and you have that heart of love. Well, Joey, that's a great canned sermon. Man, those three points are good. The impossible becomes possible. The impassable becomes impassable. And the impassionate becomes a passionate. Wow, it's great. I like that. It's a great sermon. Good sermon. It's more than a sermon, folks. It's a truth. And it's a truth lived out in my own life. I'm 64 years old. I've watched those principles work every day. See, if I came today and motivated you and got you all fired up, ready to charge hell with a water pistol, and I just got you all fired up, that fire will go. But if I can teach you three principles, those principles work every time. They work every time. Whether you're motivated or whether you're not, just like gravity, they're principles. And those principles, very simple. God does do the impossible. God will get you past any problem you're dealing with. And God will put that fire and passion back in your heart for him and for others. And those are principles.